An idea born out of Monday morning chats at the coffee machine. In this series, we chat to our guests about their going out experiences and how it shaped them. Join us, Pippa and Georgia, team members at Skiddle who love going out and miss chatting about it. Hello and welcome to series two of the Going Out podcast. This is the first episode of series two and back with Pippa and Georgia. And we've got a really exciting first guest in the series. This week on the podcast, we're joined by Sasha Lord. And we talked about his early days at the Hacienda, right up to his conversations with the government as the nighttime economy advisor. We covered all things warehouse project and part life. Oh, yes. Spanning back to the Boddington's brewery days, right up until Mayfield Depot. And yeah, it was a really exciting conversation covering how important nightlife is to all of our lives. Um, tune in. Enjoy. Today we're joined by Sasha Law, DJ, co-creator of Part Life Festival and the Warehouse Project. He's also the Nighttime Economy Advisor for Greater Manchester. So welcome to the Going welcome. Out podcast. Thank you. Can I just point one thing out? Yes. I've never DJed in my entire life. Didn't you say that your dad went to go watch it? <laughs> yeah. My dad has been telling me that he saw you when you used to do a residency right at the beginning of your career in Ashton. Is that a complete lie? Well, no, right. So this is awkward. So there, there, are two, there is a DJ, Sasha, but it's spelled differently. So I'm S-A-C-H-A. He's yeah. S-A-S-H-A. And oh DJ Sasha did start in Ashton. Then he had a residency at Shelley's in Stoke and also the Hacienda as well. But he has, well. Played, he has played at the Warehouse Project. <laughs> and I'm so glad that we've cleared this up because Should, my dad just, literally says that. Can we that. say this or not? <laughs> can we, yeah, can we just start again? Of course you can. Should I just get my coat and leave? It's not like we had questions about your DJ career. It was more... <laughs> That's so funny. That's so funny. So we'll start at the very beginning. Um, your very first going out experiences. We've been reading up a bit about you, and um, I noticed that you were going out to the Hacienda back in the day. Was Hacienda the first things that you were going to? Where you were you what? going out? No, it wasn't. So obviously, as a growing up kid, you start off at house parties, don't you? Um, yeah. But when I still first started to venture into town, there was a place called Deville's. Um, which I think now is the old smokehouse on Lloyd Street. And that was, um, it was a nightclub. It just played band music. So, you know, don't forget this is just before like, the house explosion. So you play like James, Smiths, um, you know, Happy Mondays. And then all of a sudden the kids at school were talking about, oh, the Hacienda. That's like the cool place to go. So when you went to DeVille's, I used to borrow my dad's shirt and tie and, and jacket. And they rock up thinking I was like the Dom. Um, so that I turned up at the Hacienda the following week dressing like that. I got to the front door and they said, you know what, you're not coming in. So I just looked at everyone that were just there in like tie-dye t-shirts and jeans. So I, I tried again two weeks later and I got in. And I have to say, you know, there has never been an experience in my entire life like that first time when I walked through the doors that I was hooked. I walked into a venue where there were 2,000 people in there I'd never seen anything like it before. You know, I was, I was used to all the other clubs were playing music where, you know, they'd stop every five minutes and announce that a purse had been found that belongs to Tracy or something like that. Not on the house yet, the music was just carrying on. Didn't matter who you were, what background you were from. It just did not matter. Everybody was there for the same reason. And um, I think it was probably only six months later I, I realised that myself and my friend were the only people not on ecstasy. Uh, but there was definitely love in the air. It was, um, yeah, I'd never seen anything like it. I, I think that one moment of walking through those doors, um, that was me. I was sold. Yeah. Wow. Did you, do you feel like the Hacienda kind of set the bar high for all your, the other clubs around um, the area at that time? Uh, it, not just the area, but the world. Um, you know, when I was growing up, it was Manchester, was known as Manchester. Um, the whole world and this isn't an exaggeration you can do the research on this not that the two of you are great on research but you know looking um, that, that was a joke by the way they, um, <laughs> all, all eyes were on Manchester it was our music it was our bands it was our football it was what you were wearing our fashion you know everything was coming out of this city and yeah that did set the bar nothing's come near it since yeah and mm-hmm. um, when you were 
did that introduce you to all the music that you were listening to? Were you listening to those artists before you were going out? No. So everybody thinks that I'm into house music or techno music, and I'm really not. You know, if you get into my car, I will be playing either The Smiths or Prince or David Bowie. Um, you know, he's, he's my absolute, absolute idol. I only have one tattoo, and I always swore all my life I'd never have a tattoo. And actually, when Bowie died, um, I had a tattoo done on the inside of my foot. It was the, the star from his last album, Black Star. Um, oh. So, yeah, you know, I get music, I get the house music scene, I get the techno thing, but when I'm walking around warehouse, it's not my cup of tea. I suppose that's quite surprising, knowing that kind of events that you run. Yeah, like with Warehouse Project and stuff. But in terms of the music that you listen to, first, weren't you booking artists that weren't necessarily directly electronic and maybe more bands and stuff? Indie. No, we did. We, did. we had quite a few indie bands actually. But um, no, don't forget before Warehouse Project, I had Thank You So 2000 to 2006. Yeah. So I was right in the thick of it when it came to, to house and techno on drum bass. But you're right, you know, on the opening night, we had Public Enemy. Um, the night after that, we were supposed to have Kasabian. They pulled out last minute. Um, and actually, they were doing it for free. They just wanted portions of chips and gravy. Um, we had the, you know, the Klaxons, we've had Florence and Machine. You know, we've had loads and loads of bands go faith, loads of bands go through warehouse projects. It's not all just about electronic music. Yeah. Would you like kind of book those kinds of artists now at Warehouse Project, do you think? 100%. Definitely. Yeah. I think that's. I remember. Thing. I remember at um, Homo Block had Crazy P, and I know that Crazy P can be a bit more electronic as well. But that right. was amazing. Just have that in that atmosphere and that venue. I think was just incredible. I think that was the best event last year um, during our season by by a long shot. It was it was incredible. It really was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Totally, totally. Um, so, so if you had more of a focus on other types of music, what led you into kind of your projects with Stankies and Warehouse Project? Was it a love for going out maybe? <laughs> no, actually, it was, um, you know, I, I, a friend of mine was putting a few parties on um, back in like 93, 94, so I thought I'd try it. I never wanted it. I never even thought about it as a career as a promoter. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I just... The first event was 4th of July, 94, at the Hacienda. And it just escalated from there. You know, I realised I made a, a few hundred pounds in my pocket. Bearing in mind, in those days, I was working in a clothes shop earning 20 pounds a day. So actually, to have a few hundred pounds in your pocket made a difference. And I think it was just that, that you know, I got the bug. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when you started Sankey's, it was revived from the 90s. What made you revive Sankey's and, and bring that back? I think things had changed. So Sankey's was open originally in 94 to 98. And um, 98 was the sort of the pinnacle of the naughtiness that went on in, in Manchester. You know, it wasn't security or the police that were running the doors in those times. You know, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but, you know, it wasn't wasn't the greatest, greatest of environments, to be honest. Um, we got tagged with the title Gunchester. Uh, I think that sort of sums it up. And then the police got a real hold on it. They did a fantastic job. And yeah, in, in 2000, October 2000, we reopened this. And I think everybody thought we're absolutely mental to do it. Uh, and, it and it didn't come without its challenges. But yeah, we, we did it to, to success as well. What kind of numbers were they getting, the one in the 90s, and compared to the one that you were getting? Or was it the same size kind of event? Exactly the same size. Same, yeah. same building, same space, same size. Yeah. And for those that might know Sankey's in Ibiza, what's the difference between the one in Manchester? Is it the same for those listening at home? Um, do you know what? So um, when I had Sankey's, I had it with a guy called David Vincent. And um, in the end, in 2006, when I decided I was bored of Sankey's, um, he was supposed to pay me out. He never did. We had a dispute. So apparently I'm the band from Sankey's and Ibiza, but I don't think he owns it anymore. I think it's all into it pear shapes. But Sankey's in Manchester now is um, headquarters for the Prince's Trust. And I went to the opening of it. It was amazing. And they've actually kept some really nice touches, like some of the original lights and stuff in there. It's brilliant. Oh, wow. Um, we spoke about this with Mason Collective mm-hmm. and um, they said that they used to love going to Sankey's. Yeah, um, it was like the 
home and we asked them how they felt about the venue being made into like that, office spaces yeah, that's such a strange experience what was it like for you walking in and like yeah, knowing was, that you were there uh, but it was it was weird when I was walking around and, and I was the only person in there really that knew what it was like there was you know the opening was full of suits um, yeah. but I knew where the DJ box which should have been where the main bar should have been and to be honest I couldn't think of a better organisation for it to go to mm-hmm. you know to help young kids come through the ranks now um, yeah. young kids that need a start need an advantage and they did respect some some of the original club which I thought was really nice so no it was, it was good to see actually yeah, suppose it, it, it's, it could have been some really crappy flats, which I'm yeah. delighted it wasn't. Yeah, is that how you feel about Hacienda? That's the next question. <laughs> <laughs> so after you left Sankey's, you started Warehouse Project. What was the thought behind that? So my, myself and Sam, when Sam's my business partner, when we were at Sankey's, um, we came quite bored of the same four walls week in week out. And in 2003, August of 23rd, 2003, we held the first legal warehouse party. We managed to convince um, the authorities to give the license since that should shut them all down. And that was amazing. It was 12,000 people. We brought the sound system in on the back of lorries. It was really raw. And we left Sankey's and said, Lord, you know what? Let's, let's do something similar to that again. And then the idea actually was to, to put four or five shows on. Sam got ultra excited and booked 24 and that was the start of the warehouse project. It was supposed to be a project of four or five events and we sold 100,000 tickets and, and, you know, 15 years later, albeit it didn't happen last year, you know, it's still going. Yeah. Uh, And and the the capacity now is the biggest capacity in Europe uh, on a par with Amnesia. That really annoys me. I didn't know that fact. We've got the capacity of 10,000. They've also got the capacity of 10,000. We could have applied for 10,001. Oh. And that really does annoy me. And I, I have to live with that for the rest of my life. <laughs> no. At least we no. all know about it now. Yeah. yeah. Everyone knows about it now. It counts. It counts. And it was originally at Boddington's Brewery. Yeah. What was that like as a venue for those who haven't didn't get the chance to experience that? It was, it was amazing. You know, we had the full license, the capacity was 3,000. But um, on the very, very first night, we knew there was an issue that none of us uh, could foresee coming. And the problem was it was right. It was fully licensed, by the way. Environmental health signed it off. Everyone signed it off. But um, the first night we realised that the base was leaking from the roof straight into Strangeways Prison. And then we were kind of within two weeks getting letters from prisoners to the office to say oh you know we heard Annie Max set on Saturday we got a tape and we were like this is absolutely bonkers and then the governor blamed us for an increase of drug usage within Strange Road Prison so we, we had to we had to leave I didn't find it funny at the time nor, nor, nor did the governor actually but 80, 1800 prisoners did um, and they enjoyed that free of charge so um, we had to leave and um, we jumped in Sam's many looking for another space and just one night I was Googling air raid shelters in Manchester and Store Street, where we moved to, was the biggest air raid shelter in the city centre. And oh, that was wow. our spiritual home. And in fact, people yeah. didn't realise that right at the very back of Store Street, there's, um, well, you know where the portaloos are? Yeah. Uh, or where they were. There's um, a corridor there and it has on it Warden's Office written above it. And that's oh, where people yeah. used to come in and sign during World War Two. Oh my God, that's so Yeah, that's, that's crazy. So, I never knew it was like, I, obviously the space, we were talking about it earlier yeah. today, like the space of Store Street is incredible. And when I lived in Ancoats and I used to walk past um, in the day, seeing it being used as a car park and then on the Friday night be turned into Warehouse Project was so like mad. And we were saying... We, we had- we have, so we used to get, we got the keys at seven o'clock on Friday. Yeah. We turned it into a nightclub and then we'd hand it back at six o'clock in the Monday morning. Wow. There was this one night I was driving to work and it was like nine o'clock and then security were panicking because there was a Ford Fiesta in the middle of the dance floor. Uh, we were going to ask you <laughs> if there was ever a car left in the car park. Yeah, there was. So there was this Ford Fiesta and I said, well, don't worry about it. The guy will pick it up. Anyway, the queue had formed outside, massive queue. I think I actually think we had LeRue play that night. Um, and anyway, 10 to 10, I was looking at this car and the idea was I've got 25 dormants to pick it up to walk it out. <sighs> and then all of a sudden this guy, this Chinese guy, must have been like four foot eleven, ran in. And he I think he thought he was like being spiked. 
he couldn't get his head around the fact he parked his car in the middle of a nightclub. Oh, well, that's what just... I mean. When it's a car park in the day, you wouldn't look twice at it because it, it literally just had the sign like, like five quid all day and you literally wouldn't <laughs> ever yeah. have guessed. No, he just got in and drove off. He looked in absolute shock. And I don't, I, 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 I'd love to meet that guy actually again just to explain because I, I do think he honestly thought somebody had you know, put something in his drink. That's like taking, like <laughs> when you go to Asda or Tesco and you lose your car in the car park, like yeah. to a whole new level. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Like we were just laughing today. Like, I wonder if anyone's ever left their car. Like, yeah, they have. Yeah, that's so class. That's so class. Yeah. And now obviously Warehouse Project is like based at Mayfield Depot. Yes. Like what made you change to that venue? Because both Store Street and Mayfield Depot are incredible. Venues. But also there was Victoria Warehouse in between, oh, yeah. wasn't there? So Yeah, I didn't like it at all. Hated it. No, Absolutely hated that. it. Yeah. We, I I didn't I never went to the one at Victoria. As a party goer, my only problem with with because you come in from like the town centre is you, you always get dropped off in a really like unsafe place at Victoria Warehouse by taxi drivers, and that's like my only like issue with it. Well, no, it do you know what? it's fine now? It's great now because the new people are running it, but the people that were running it when we had it, they didn't have a clue. Did not have a clue what they were doing, and it was so frustrating. Um, so actually, when we moved back to we were only there two years. When we moved back to Store Street. It was like everyone was high fired on the first night. It's like the family were back again. But every single year on year, we always try and improve what we did the previous year. We've taken Store Street to a level where you just couldn't improve it anymore. And when you can't improve it, I think the customer starts to get a bit bored. You take things yeah. for granted. So we had to make the, the big bold move. And it's moved from 2,500 to 10,000. And it, you know, it was risky. We, there was a possibility people can say you've sold out it's not intimate anymore and actually it was the right move to do mm-hmm. yeah I remember going to the George Fitzgerald night at Mayfield Depot the year that it was still at Store Street but you did one night at Mayfield yes and it was incredible and then walking into Mayfield like la- oh, not last year now the year before oh. for the first time felt completely different like I didn't know where where I was going and whether it had been arranged differently from the George Fitzgerald night but I remember going in there for George Fitzgerald and just being like completely blown away by this huge venue and then yeah going the next year and seeing like bicep with like the mad lasers which we always bang on about but <laughs> that's just that's, like incredible yeah, that, was, that was a good night I mean you know one of these things that, that's come out of the last 12 months is I've had the chance to really look at myself and uh, not in the mirror I do that every day you know, I used to take it for granted walking around a venue with 10,000 people dancing, just thinking that's very normal. Um, or park life, 80,000 people thinking, oh, yeah, it's just part of life. But actually, 10,000 people under one roof every Friday and Saturday is crazy. I'll never, you know, I'll, I'll never just take that as being the norm again. Yeah. Um, you know, every time I see that now, I'll respect it. Yeah, yeah, and I think more people will stay till the end of of gigs and and club nights as well. Like, I feel like everyone attending won't take it for granted either. Everyone's gonna be everyone's Soaking gonna realize how minute. much it means. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The whole process, though, as we see it, is like got such an atmosphere around it. I miss that as well. Like even like knowing something's gonna go on sale and it's gonna be like warehouse project the season. The buzz around that is like. I love the tease. I love love sitting at home, looking at my phone, thinking about I'm just going to tease people now on Twitter and then just sit there watching it. Oh, that's Um, brilliant. Yeah, Yeah. it is good. It just builds up the anticipation, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what um, Warehouse Project and Part Life do so well, though, isn't it? Part Life videos are always like everyone's waiting on 10 to Yeah, there'll just be that one image that's like news incoming or something and everyone's like, ah! Yeah, and it's some like cool (laughs) cool cartoon. we all, do you know normally we always drop a hint um, to try and play with people and actually the last big hint we did I think it was three years ago we put before we announced the lineup we put posters up all around town it was just a Nike trainer a retro Nike trainer and the only guy who understood what we were trying to do actually used to work at Skiddle it was a guy called David Blake and he oh, texted yeah. me he texted me to say <laughs> Frank Ocean he was the only one that got it oh uh, that's it that's yeah. so funny. oh Nike. a little shout out yeah, <laughs> yeah. so yeah Smart I'll wait for the next I'm going to wait for the next one and try and get that right yeah I could take it now if you want oh <gasps> Can yeah. I know? Are we allowed yeah. to sing it? Not a chance. <laughs> I'm like, we can oh. 
probably because we said we, you were a DJ. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, no, I'm not going to share that anymore. <laughs> Um, so what were the best nights to take place at the venues that you've booked artists at? Yeah, have you got any years, standout like, memories? I've got, yeah, I've got my own personal favourites. Um, so obviously growing up, and still am a huge, huge Smiths fan. Um, and in 2011, we booked a band called Chic. And yeah. This was just before Nile Rogers had this big track with Pharrell and Daft Punk. Um, and he's actually, do you know what he didn't sell out? It was very, very busy, but it didn't sell out because people didn't realise who Sheik were. Uh, and for the very final track, when they played The Freak, I sat in the pit, which is the best of front, and Johnny Marr came on and, and performed with them. And to me, that, wow. was, that was the perfect 10 minutes. Yeah. yeah that's, Rich that's, mentioned that as well, didn't he? Yeah, because he said that you guys were kind of putting on Sheik before they kind of had their revival and started like going to festivals and stuff. Like that must have been yeah. crazy. But it's, it's true. So there is footage on YouTube of um, Sheik at Park Life on the Skiddle Bus um, with Johnny Marham in an interview. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. It. Yeah. I went a couple of years ago, I saw Sheik at Castlefield Bowl, and that's like one of my all time favorite ever like that was gigs. Ours. That was oh, ours yeah. Well. yeah. That was honestly, I remember like Nye Rogers was getting everyone to clap, and I looked around, and every single person in the bowl had the heart arms above the head, and it was like a gorgeous June like afternoon. It was, oh, it was beautiful. Yeah. Um, oh. Those days will be back. Do you know they the weirdest will. thing is? Um, Johnny Marr became my neighbour four years later (laughs) next door so yeah I have to say as well the loveliest guy you could ever meet the nicest the nicest most genuine down to earth loveliest man and, and his wife as well both lovely, lovely people. Oh, that's oh great. Love that. Sometimes when you meet your heroes and it doesn't go well, it's not. Yeah. It's not nice, is it? <laughs> well, yeah. I have, I have met his um, other half as well from the Smiths, and you know what? I've, he said things that have been wrong over the last few years, but when I've met him, it's been very pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, okay. and I'll be honest, quite funny. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's reassuring because, like, I grew up listening to Morrissey, like as a like as like the family used to play it a lot and then having to kind of separate him from his music or not listen to his music because of the stuff that he says it's it's been like a, a definitely like a challenge like knowing it has to celebrate so that. I'll tell you a story now that I can't believe I'm going to tell you yay <laughs> I've, never, I've never told anyone this before so he's going to kill me so I am friends with Morris's nephews Sam, Alex and Jay and um, they knew I was a big fan a big Mozart fan and uh, every time I see them they always give me something which is so amazing of them always you know like Morrissey crew audience and stuff like that you can't go but there was a spate a few years ago where Alex would turn up at my office and give me a bag and was like oh what's this and it's a Giorgio Armani uh, shirt Morrissey wore that he's like alright cool and then I got a couple more things and then one day he turned up with this bottle I'm like what's that I'm like Oh, it's his aftershave. I'm like, well, where's that coming from? I've just taken from Zoom. I'm like, right, we need to stop doing this now. Because it's actually, you can't just go in and get your uncle's aftershave to get to me. We just need to pause it there. So, But do you, do you, crazy stuff. Do you think it actually is? Or do you think they're just grabbing things out of their wardrobe and being like... No, it's 100% it is. 100%. Yeah. 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 I don't poo-poo the story, John. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just thought that would be Cynic probably what I would do. Um, and Alex, you had... Alex, I think Alex will listen to this and I'll tell this story as well. So yeah. Morrissey has an obsession with, um, oh, what's that candle called? Diptyque. Diptyque candles. Yeah, Diptyque, he yeah. absolutely loves Diptyque candles. A couple of years ago, he phoned Alex up one morning and said, um, have you got anything planned today? And Alex is like, no. So all right, can you go to um, Selvages at Trafford Centre and pick me up six Diptyque Handles. And I said, yeah, yeah, I can do that. He said, any chance you can do it this morning? He said, yeah, yeah, how come? He said, oh, because I've got you on a flight at half one. I'm in Palmer at the moment in New York. Can you bring them over? And he got him on a flight to drop the six candles off and he had to come back in the same day. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So they don't have diptyque over in Spain? <laughs> I don't think so. They don't think <laughs> well, that that takes like dropping something off to like a whole new know. level, doesn't it? Yeah, Jesus. Um, and you've had a huge involvement in festivals over the years. So before I get it wrong, what which <laughs> festivals have you been involved with? Obviously, as well as Part Life. With the lovely Part Life. Hideout. Um, 
Croatia, Annie Mac Festival, Malta, Kendall Calling, Blue Dot, Festival Number no. 6. Uh, I kind of think that's it. I'll probably think of some more. But yeah, that's it for now. God, that, that's a good company of festivals yeah. to like, be involved with. Like, oh, great. Are they? Are these all like co-creations or do you have a hand in like helping with artists or advising or the part, the part life is our baby yeah that's all the others are with other people the part life's ours yeah yeah and it should have been 10 years last year how does that make you feel knowing that you've done a full decade now well the fact that it didn't happen you just completely depressed me so thanks <laughs> oh, but it sorry. will happen it will happen <laughs> <laughs> it will happen do you know what we normally it normally takes place middle of June as you know yeah. um, it's, we pushed it back quite a few months ago um, to mid-September and I'm yeah. confident I'm very very confident oh, that's so exciting it hear. does um, Manchester is such a huge city but it depends on the student population of Manchester so how, what made you think then and not next year or are you just hoping for this year um, you know you've got to plan for success haven't you and yeah. um, clearly we've not announced the lineup yet it is booked Sam's booked it um, but I just think September's going to be right we have got a new order that we've announced the night before on the 10th of September ticket sales are phenomenal for it you know people are dying to go out to gig I think it was a you know it it was a fluke what the perfect Manchester band to bring his bike it's going that will be the first big event that takes place in the city um, 10th of September so yeah it's good to have a Manchester band headline in Manchester gig yeah Yeah. and they're also being supported by Working Men's Club yes they're a really exciting northern band I think most of them are based in Hebden Bridge I think but that like that in itself is exciting to see such a cool up and coming band on the same kind of platform Um, do you know know he's really good on his bands on his up and going bands so Working Men's Club Lottery Winners uh, Andy Burnham yeah he's absolutely spot on with his bands he well Um, he has dabbled in DJing hasn't he yeah he he DJed for you on United We Stream actually yeah Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah, he DJed versus Steve Rotherham there for Liverpool wow Uh, yeah and what this is another thing I'm going to tell you now (laughs) That that was clearly Manchester versus Liverpool. Yeah. We couldn't advertise this Manchester versus Liverpool, could we? So, you know, it'd be quite bad, but it, it was. And there was no way on earth I was going to allow Liverpool to win. It's just not going to happen. You know, Manchester had to win. So um, I actually kind of, I didn't fix it, but obviously they weren't DJing back-to-back live. That would have been absolutely impossible to do. So we recorded Liverpool first, and then I possibly showed Andy the set list. <laughs> I'm not saying I did, but I could have done if I'd really wanted to. If you know the option to was there. Yeah. The option uh, was there. Yeah. So you could pre-select yeah. all, maybe, the, maybe. all the choices. Dressing Interesting. The you could get him a slot at the Parklife Festival. It's, it's, Andy's been to been on stage at two Parklifes, actually. Yeah. Uh, the first time our conversations probably um, became quite concrete was... In 2017, uh, he'd only been elected for a few days and we had the attack on um, the, the city, the 22nd of May, the arena attack. Um, and then there was obviously the One Love gig 10 days after that, uh, which is 50,000 people. The part was 80,000 people. And, you know, the One Love gig was absolutely amazing. But to me, it was an international thing. You had like, Bieber, yeah. Miley Cyrus and all the huge name. But I wanted... We, by, again, coincidence, we have the 1975 books, which have got a Manchester link, and I wanted to really recognise the first attenders, the paramedics, the police, the NHS, the taxi drivers, the councillors, the public that opened the doors, fire brigade. And we got representatives all on stage, and then and Andy came on, made a speech, and you could hear a pin drop in the crowd. It was wow. a, a, a moment I'll never forget for the rest of my life. Um, and then the following year, he came back and introduced... Um, he, he, had, he came across two guys when he was walking through Piccadilly Gardens uh, who were busking at the time and I think the name of the, their band was Prose and he put them together with the Manchester Survivors Choir and they were kids and mums and dads who were at the arena that night and they formed a choir oh. and they performed on stage together and Andy brought, brought them out to do it and oh, wow. you, you know it was for those those people to come in to 
an event with 80,000 people. They'd suffered so much mm-hmm. those two years leading up to it. Some of them had major anxiety. We had to find ways where they could get to the stage without seeing other people or, or being in contact with crowds. They couldn't have done that. So, yeah, they pulled it off. And it was, again, another majorly proud moment. Yeah. How did the Manchester attacks affect you as an, uh, an event organiser, obviously of a huge festival and of Warehouse Project? How did it affect you kind of mentally and in, uh, in organising your events? It was, um, I, the, the following morning, when I, do you know what? I was watching it breaking on the news and I thought, there's no way. I, I thought it's base pin had blown or something like that. And it was only the next day I woke up and turned the news on and I was seeing the, the attack on the, you know you know the city centre on the on the country um, and you know we knew that you know we knew many people were dead we now know that there was twenty two um, some of those families that I've become quite friendly with I'm friendly with the arena um, survivors choir I'm friendly with Fegan Murray who's brought out Martin's Law um, you know, Andrew Lusos who's, who's and, and his wife Lisa whose daughter um, Safi she she lost her life there um, and it's affected everybody. Everybody, everyone in, in the whole of the UK is affected. Yeah. But what a moment when you saw Albert Square and people just come together and bursting out in, in, into songs, just sporadic song. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was, it, you know, that's what we do in this. This It's quite emotional to talk about, isn't it? That's yeah. what we do in this city centre. You know, we, I'm not going to swear on this, you know, I don't know who's listening to it, but <laughs> we fight against adversity um, because we do not give a toss, basically. You know, we, we will stand up and fight. No one defeats And that's what we did. That's exactly what we did. You know, we came out stronger. Yeah. Um, but I'll be honest, two, day, two weeks later when Parkland was on and, you know, we had marksmen hidden in trees and things like that. It wasn't pleasant to work at all. Um, and the police implemented things that I, me as the events organiser, I didn't have a clue was coming. Um, they, they kept it, they were so ultra professional. Like they closed all the roads down in the perimeter of Heaton Park half an hour before everybody was leaving because obviously one of the biggest concerns was a vehicle um, that can be used as a weapon. So yeah, it's, um, it certainly changed the way we look at security anyway. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've experienced experience that I feel like feel I feel a lot safer going into an event now. I don't know. I always felt safe going into an event, but now I feel being more aware of like sudden threats. I yeah. guess that's and event organizers have to adapt to that. I, I don't know if it's because I'm an event organizer, but I sometimes get slight anxiety in, in areas um, because I understand the possibilities. And there's one area. And I don't know why every single time I panic, and that's occasionally when I have to go to London for a meeting, and I get out of the cab at Euston train station, and you walk under the station to go up the escalator, and always at that point there, I don't know what it is, it's like kind of weird. In fact, when I'm talking this through with both of the two, you maybe should avoid that area and just go through another entrance. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it definitely not that we weren't doing an amazing job anyway. Yeah. We weren't talking about events organisers, security, police, but everybody steps up the game at that point because there's a new form of attack that needs to be aware of. Yeah. yeah. Um, touching on security, um, you do a lot at Warehouse Project and Park Life around drug safety. Well, we want to discuss that, but also you're the nighttime economy advisor. And we did the DCMS inquiry and it had the question around festival organisers. What can they do to limit the amount of drugs being taken on site? Do you think that drug use is synonymous with music events or does it annoy you that that's always brought up by the government? No, I don't. So if you're talking about the same one, I gave evidence of that select committee and it was yeah. about how you bring festivals back yeah. and I was so annoyed at the end of it because we were supposed to be talking about how do you bring festivals back with COVID around you know and is it testing is it social distancing what is the answer and then they threw the drug question at the end what has that got to do with bringing festivals back and this is the mentality of suits you know this isn't a new thing drugs are not a new thing Drugs have been around. When you're at school and you're reading, that you know, you're told to read the, the poets, um, you know, key towards what they're all taking opium. You know, we know that. That this is not new. And it's not just with music. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you can go to any pub, a lot of restaurants, even multi-use offices, and I'll do a swab on those toilets there, and you'll find evidence of something. But yeah, clearly, 
it takes place in festivals. Clearly, it takes place in nightclubs. And anybody involved in festivals or nightclubs that says it doesn't take place in their venue, there's one of two reasons they're saying that. They're either stupid or the like, because it does. So my stance on this is this. It's going to happen. How can I stop it getting in if the government can't stop drugs getting into the UK? If they can't stop drugs getting into a Category A prison like strange rights, then how on earth am I supposed to do it stopping into a field? I mean, let's be realistic. So what I say is, it's going to happen. So let's educate people about, you know, responsibilities and, you know, what could happen. And if you feel poorly, do this, that and the other. Put enough facilities in there to make sure people are looked after safely, whether it's volunteers. Or, or, you know, if you come to the back of part life, there's practically a hospital there on site. Um, so, yeah, you cannot ignore it. We were the first ones in the UK to join forces with the Home Office and to do back of house drug testing. And, you know, it is absolutely the right thing to do. You cannot ignore that. And it's going to be here next year. It's going to be here this year. It's going to be here in 50 years' time. In 100 years' time, people will probably be licking Bitcoins. I've no idea. But, you know, <laughs> nothing's going away. It's not going away. So let's address it and let's address it like adults rather than hiding behind it. Yeah. Do you think it's feasible for every single event, music event or other event, to have that kind of testing on site? No, it's absolutely not. You know, if you look at a venue, you know, a small venue like the Wyatt Hotel in Salford, for example, which is an incredible uh, venue, it's not financially viable. But what they can do is they can have a couple of staff trained to look out for things or deal with things. And, you know, yeah, every single venue, every single licensed premises takes a responsibility for the customers when they're in there and that's one of the five licensing objectives you have to be responsible for the customers is keeping people safe and away from harm so it, it, everyone needs to discuss it everyone needs to learn about it be aware of it and clearly the bigger the event the more responsibility you take mm-hmm. yeah for sure i must i must say just you know to caveat that you cannot cotton wool everybody that goes in there you know it just takes one person to do something that you know they may not have understood it it may have been out of the control they may normally nine times out of ten had an allergic reaction um so yeah things do go wrong as we know across the globe not just the uk not just greater manchester um but as long as you set out to do as much as you possibly can then you are a good organizer yeah i've sent warnings sent out from warehouse project as well which yes. is which I think is really good. Mm-hmm. But I suppose that all comes under what you're aiming to do as a nighttime economy advisor. So um, how did it, how did that come about? It actually came about because um, when I knew we were getting a mayor, a new mayor, and all the candidates were running for it, I always felt that you know the nighttime economy, hospitality, is the fifth biggest industry in the whole of the UK. You probably heard me saying all this stuff before, so it gets a bit boring now. But you know, there's 420,000 people that work within that sector in my sector across Greater Manchester. But some of the people that were making the decisions didn't respect the sector. I kind of get it. If you go for a meal, or you go to the cinema, or you go to the pub, or a nightclub, so when you're seeing your friend, you're letting your hair down, you're having fun, you're having a few drinks. But actually, we bring a lot to the economy, a serious amount of money, serious amount of jobs. And as I said, it's the fifth biggest industry. So I wanted to speak to the candidates and see whether they'd support the idea of almost a task force of people, like a board of people who would give advice to whoever won. Now, luckily, Andy won, who completely understands the importance of it. Yeah. And, you know, I think the conversation stemmed from that first time we came to Part Life. On the back of that, we were talking quite a bit. What would I think about this? What would I think about that? And then, you know, eventually he asked me, 12 months later, almost exactly whether I'd take the role up. And I, I never thought that it would be one person. I thought it'd be a few. But um, he's been great. He's been so supportive behind the scenes. Uh, you know, I, I, some examples have been in the press. But the vast majority aren't in the press. Uh, and he's on the phone a lot saying, what can you do to help this, to help that? And when, he, you know, when the Deaf Institute, when it was breaking, that it was closing. Uh, and Gorilla, 
Within two minutes, he was like, right, this cannot happen. We cannot happen, have two grassroots venues close. It would be a disaster. You know, the, the smaller bands need these venues, they had the pipeline for talent. So I said something on Thursday on socials. By the Saturday, the new owners have sat with lawyers doing the deal on the Sunday, it got announced. So that's how quickly he moves and that's how much he cares. Yeah, wow. I remember seeing something around um, making trams run later yeah. in Manchester. Yeah, I did actually drive in mental about that. So um, my, my school of thought was, you know, we talk about having a 24-hour city and we've got the infrastructure for it, but it doesn't really work when tra- trams stop at 11 o'clock. And I'm yeah. not just talking about uh, customers getting home, but what about those people that work in restaurants? Um, bars that, that shut at half 11, 12. You know, why is it right that they then get penalised? And lots of them are paid minimal or living wage. Why are they penalised and they have to pay for a taxi to get home? Didn't sit right with me that. So I was saying to Andy, look, can we just trial this over Christmas? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he got a lot of pushback from that people that didn't want to do it. And he, he stood his ground and, and said, no, this is happening. And it, it did happen. And it was so fantastic to see. And a lot of people were saying, oh, you're going to get drunk people on there. There's going to be fights. It's going to be this. It's going to be that. Do you know what? There was not one incident. Nothing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, well, you always get these people who point fingers and they always find something wrong with something. Like at the moment, I'm talking about, uh, you know, in, in my opinion, I think when non-essential retail opens, I think it's far safer to go for lunch in a restaurant with all, you know, one-way systems, Q&R codes, track and trace, social distance, and it's just going buy a jumper in Primark. You know, it, it does not make sense to me. Now, how can you open the Trafford Centre? I'm not going to go to Trafford Centre, by the way, but how can you open the Trafford Centre but keep Manchester City Art Gallery shut? It's bonkers. It's yeah. absolutely bonkers. It doesn't make sense. When you go into a supermarket at the moment, it is such a free-for-all. There's not even like one-way directions in a lot of supermarkets at the moment. So when I and like other people have been into these bars and club, bars and pubs sorry, in the summer, I felt so safe. I felt like everyone was respective of everyone's space. Everyone knew exactly. what they were doing, what direction it was going in. Um, so how have you found being the nighttime economy advisor during the last 12 months? Well, I'll be honest, it's not been a breeze, has it? No. You know, it's, it's kept me quite busy but just going back to the supermarket thing I've got a major problem with supermarkets now you know because mm-hmm. I, I go to the one in Oldham I go to Sainsbury's and I always see Sally Webster in there from Corrie quite often right have you seen Bridgerton yes no. I have and I know what you're going to say that's Sally's daughter can How you can believe that I yeah. can't look at Sally Webster in the face again <laughs> after seeing what her daughter gets up to in Bridgerton. I'm going to have to hide in the, in the Frozen Isle or something. I've not watched it. I'm going to Google her. Don't oh, Google really it when I'm on. That's rude, isn't it? <laughs> oh, Sally Webster! Yeah. Oh, from Corrie. Yeah. 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 I've not watched Bridgerton. So her daughter's like the main the main. Yeah. Girl, it? I, mean, it's, I mean, it's literally pornographic. <laughs> yeah, I've heard. I've heard. Yeah. It is, isn't it? They go to it in a bit too much detail about certain it. things, and it's like yeah, one of them. And um, <laughs> they use so- songs from modern day. Yeah, this one and then scene. they do. Yeah, I've heard about that. It's brilliant. They use um, yeah, an orchestral version of Billie Eilish. Which is yeah. amazing. That is so. It's yeah. so funny. That love that. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, don't, I think I need to watch it. You've all watched it for me. <laughs> yeah, we give you spoiler alerts there. Yeah. Um. So I think touching back on your going out experiences, where would you go out now? Back in the day, it was all the hacienda. Yeah. But what do you enjoy doing now? Everything. Everything's open in this hypothetical. Yeah, I, I absolutely just love, <clears throat> this is so boring and it has to be an age thing. <laughs> just, I just love, I love going for a meal with friends. Yeah. I absolutely love it. And I'm really lucky that occasionally I can go to these wine pairing, you know, these wine pairing things, so it's like oh. seven horses. Oh, yeah. get a glass of wine with each one. They're, to me, they're the best. I love them. Um, but yeah, so like a six by Nico situation. Yeah, we had one of those a couple of weeks ago, actually. Home delivery. It was really yeah. Cool. Oh, me and my sis are doing one in March. I'm well excited. Yeah, they're amazing. They actually are amazing. Simon Wood does a good one as well. His is really good. Oh, yeah. What um, the- my my favourite restaurants at the moment 
Um, and he's an incredible chef and he's been a fantastic voice during the last 12 months. There's a guy called Tom Kerridge and his restaurant's called The Bull and Bear in Manchester. I love it. It's fantastic. It's very, it's very opulent, but the food is extra. Basic's not the right word, but it's, it's just, you know, like a really good... Like a classic kind of thing. And pie and that's... Oh, yeah. yeah. That's his style though, isn't it? Uh, like good home-cooked food. Yeah. I yeah. miss eating out so much. Yeah, me too. Have you... How... I've seen that um, like loads of the Northern quarters getting pedestrianised. Yeah. Do you think that would, would that, was that going to happen prior to COVID or has COVID made that happen because we, everyone was sat out on the streets? I think, I don't know, but my guess is I think it was going to happen, but I think COVID has definitely rubber stamped it. Um, oh great I felt like you were in like Barcelona or somewhere yeah Yeah. it's it's so good and on so many levels you know it helps the operators it feels safe it feels great and you know from a from an environmental point of view as well you've not got the buses going through that area it's it's really is a good move yeah Yeah, I'm excited to sit out in summer because pre that it was quite difficult to find um, a spot in a beer garden in Manchester on sunny days because all the good spots were like taken so it was good that all these extra places opened up last year yeah begging for that (laughs) and all of these kind of like culture food outlets have happened as well they're all over Instagram I think there's been a huge influx of those, which is quite positive to see. Mm. So I'll make a prediction. Um, so the high streets now, when we reopen again, they change. They change for good. So there's no top man, top shop, Miss yeah. Savages, Debenhams, mm-hmm. Burdens, Wallaces. They've all gone, and there'll be more to follow as well. So you've got these massive vacuum spaces. I think, sadly, a lot of those food traders who had to close during COVID, they're desperate to get out. And I think we're going to see cooperatives forming of food traders who will create food halls and share expensive rents, overhead bills, and, you know, that very similar to kind of Mackie Mare, yeah. Yeah. where you don't have one guy running it, you will share the cost. I yeah. think that's the future. There is like an argument for that kind of like diversive um, high streets anyway, isn't there, in terms of like safety. I remember reading an article ages ago and it talked about how like Market Street, for example, after 8 p.m. it would would all close because all the shops have closed and that is a not a well, like very well lit area now because all the shops have closed. But if you get kind of bars and food places all mixed in, kind of like how London's set up, how their high streets are all kind of different um, types of venues, it'll become a much... For example, Northern Quarter in the in the evening is a very high populated yeah. place, but but like everyone kind of moves from different spots in having instead of having it all kind of like yeah. But I, I also around. yeah, I also think as well, um, and I'm very confident about this. That the bigger the city centre, the harder it's going to be to recover. So when we're in tier two, when we could go to some of those restaurants, people are staying local. The city centre is going to be the hardest one to get people to come back to. I think people are going to stay local. So all those suburbs like, you know, Old Trafford, um, Wigan, Tameside, Stockport, this is their time to thrive. All those independents, those family-run businesses, they're going to be given a real opportunity mm-hmm. um, to thrive because I, I think it's going to be hard to get people onto public transport. People have realised about the added expense and the hassle of waiting to in queues for cabs and things. It's going to change things. It's going to change the way we operate. And, you know, again, throw into the mix, majority of offices will never return like they ever did do before. Um, You know, my my partner, she works for the biggest, second biggest online store in the UK. And although they've they've had phenomenal sales, they're never going to return back to normal. She's been told that. She's had the official email, be three days working from home, two days in the office. And that has a huge knock-on effect when you think about no sandwich trade at lunchtime, no drinks after work. It's it's devastating. Yeah, Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it that far. Yeah, I've always thought about it from just the the empty office space, but just thinking about those lunchtime kind of places Mm. and the after-work drinks, it's going to change the whole landscape of it do you have you got have you got plans for warehouse project this year or are you gonna see how part life sales and stuff go it's it's been booked at the moment we're ready (gasps) that's great news yes (laughs) i am super keeping my fingers crossed for a proper autumn season it doesn't it does you can't beat like when the clubs reopen they all release their 
lineups and yeah. seasons I completely like miss that atmosphere I think the excitement yeah. Yeah, for sure. And when you've got like huge venues like that, oh, I'm just, I'm really excited for that. <laughs> um, so when can we expect anywhere else project news, or are you just going to wait for a little bit? I'm not going to tell you that. We like to tease people. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Wait we'll for, look out a, for the tease. Yeah, wait for a poster with a trainer on it, and then we'll, we we'll let me Frank Ocean. We did a post. I think it was 2009. We thought we'd be really cool. And we did a World War II code. So we announced the lineup um, where every letter was a colour. Oh, and wow. we sold no tickets because people couldn't crack it. <laughs> that, so is, had, that is quite difficult. Yeah, we had to re-release the whole season the week after. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, it's too hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we usually ask a question at the end of every episode. But we've got a couple, actually, one in particular <laughs> is obviously you've been going out for a while. And um, how does it feel looking back on your going out experiences, knowing that you're kind of the reason for a lot of younger people having their going out experiences now? Is it kind of... I think what you're trying to say is, now that I'm an old person, how do I feel looking at the young kids going out? I can answer it. I'm, I'm very privileged yeah. I fluked it. You know, I didn't get any A-levels, didn't go to university. And somehow I've ended up with part of life awareness project and then <laughs> the role advising Greater Manchester. So, yeah, it's, it's something that I'm, I'm pretty proud of. Yeah. Oh, great. That's incredible. Shall we ask our final question? Yeah. So, if you could go out anywhere with anyone, who and where would it be? Anywhere in the world? Yeah. yeah. Dead or alive? Well, it's I mean, it's clear... It's obviously David Bowie. Yeah. Where would you go? Think. Can this place have closed? Yeah. Yeah. That, but that's without a, a sh- without a shadow of a doubt, I'd go for a night out with David Bowie at Studio Fifty Four in New York. Oh wow! Oh, that's I think epic. Someone, did someone in Series One say they went to that? I think maybe, maybe. I'm not sure. I think Danny wanted to go there with Prince. So yeah, you might see, <laughs> Danny, from, Danny from Crazy Peter <laughs> there with Prince. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. No, um, thank you. And do you know we, what? Thank you as well to Skiddle for your support through COVID because I do watch socials and I do see you retweet things and stuff like that. And, you know, I know you've got a great platform, a great audience. So thank you. It means a lot to everybody. Thank oh, you. Thank we really you. appreciate that. I think it's been a hard time for everyone, but again, Apparently. thank you to you for like sticking up for employees like yeah. us, companies <laughs> like us, because yeah without without you kind of lobbying for us it's quite hard to get listened to by the government so yeah definitely no, thank you as well don't listen to me <laughs> <laughs> a bit more okay. yeah. a bit more maybe but okay. thank you so much look thank after you. yourselves thank, thank you, you too. I can't wait, can't wait to put tickets on sale with you bye thank bye. you yeah <laughs> bye oh thank you so much Thank you for listening to the Going Out podcast with Skiddle. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe wherever you hear this podcast. Thank you.